Imagine a world where correctional officers were trauma therapists. I always say it was an honor to interview these individuals, and I'm so excited for you to meet them. But like this today has a different flavor to it. I cannot wait for you to have the opportunity for insight and to hear this conversation. One of the most powerful I have had since I have started to podcast. It is my honor to introduce you to John Jackson. I have quite the view today. So not only can I see the mountains behind me here in Palm Springs, but I am sitting across from my guest. So I am super excited to introduce you to my friend, Sammy Taggart. And Sammy, I'm wondering, can you just share with people a little bit about who you are and what gets you totally jazzed in the world of entrepreneurship? Oh, that's the best question. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. I think entrepreneurship for me has been an incredible journey because I started my first entrepreneurial journey as a door-to-door salesperson in college. Oh my God. Uh We're going there. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned rejection so quick, but no one really understands how good it is to get 30 no's right away. No one understands how good it is to get rejected that much and to just have the perseverance to keep going. So that has been one of the driving forces into my entrepreneurial, into that journey. And then from that, most of the people and how you know me is the DJ as the main guy that creates the vibe for everybody at the Mindshare Summit and for Traffic and Conversion and Mind Valley, And that whole journey actually started for me in the bathroom at a nightclub because the only job I could get after a really tumultuous summer was to work as the mint and napkin guy in a, in a bathroom at Alley Cats in Denver. And the crazy thing about that is I use that same entrepreneurial hustle to gain rapport with people and make pretty good money. I know there's so much more to your story. So, I, but I want to back up for one second and I want everyone to just like hold a promise for me in this situation because you mentioned the door-to-door sales piece. And one thing I am, I am going to put my kids into is I want them to be that person on the street who asks you if you want to donate to the charity and nine times out of 10, they say no. So cruel, but so good It's a bit cruel, but I'm coming at this from a loving place because you mentioned this whole idea of being able to withstand rejection. Like you realize it doesn't define you or any of those those pieces. So I'm just acknowledging that and I'm actually (laughs) just asking all of you to keep this as a tight secret. But, you know, that segue into, and then we we really need to talk about what happened in the bathroom at this this club. I think sometimes we get caught up in this idea that entrepreneurship is, is totally glamorous and it's easy. And if we're not in a flow and if it's not easy, then we're probably in the wrong place. Has that been your experience? Like, how did you overcome that? Because so far in listening to the story, this isn't an easy. No. Well, I think 99.9% of all entrepreneurs, Megan, will say that the entrepreneurial road, if somebody showed you what was going to happen, they would be like, F that. There's no way I'm doing that. Uh, So when it comes to the journey of entrepreneurship, it's a day-to-day kind of discovery of what you can do and what you're resilient for. And then ultimately what your zone of genius is 
And then when you find that zone of genius, how to build the people around you. And so that's what I learned from being sidelined as this DJ in these places. Everybody that's in this, that makes it work, they have a team and this family that they've built around them. And I always dreamt of that. I was like, what does that look like? What would that feel like to say, oh, I just talked to so-and-so. Let me have, let me have Cassandra reach out to you and she'll take care of the rest. And then we can have this dialogue. Right. That is, that's been the, the game changing piece for entrepreneurship for me. And that's what I hope for anybody that's listening to this is to learn that, yes, you will wear multiple hats and yes, it's not easy, but if you can use some of the tools and the things that you have been able to teach people and that you let people know about, then their entrepreneurial struggles don't have to be that insanely shitty because it can be really tough. And there's a lot of nights of just pulling your hair out when you don't use the stuff that's out there because that's the problem, right? People are like, dude... Every super successful person has not only just left clues, but they've left you courses, podcasts, books. <laughs> they've left everything. Episode one through 234, <laughs> if you are looking for references on those pieces. John Jackson, welcome to Impact. Thank you, Megan, for having me. I'm really grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Oh, well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And I was just sharing with you again, um, but I, I reached out to you uh, a few weeks ago and said, we've shifted the nature of this podcast and of this platform. And one of the things that I really want to do in a very intentional and concerted way is create a space to have conversations with people who are having very unique impacts on the world. And as I was sort of pulling together the list of people that I wanted to have a conversation in this, uh, in this realm, uh, you were right at the very top. And we had an opportunity to connect last year. You worked with me to help have Kat come and, and speak to our audience, but I was really intrigued by you and your energy. Um, and I'm wondering, John, if we can start off by you sharing with us a little bit more about your story so everyone has context for my intrigue. I would love for you to start off actually where we are right now with the work that you are doing in the world and why you are so uniquely qualified to be able to have the impact that you are having. Awesome. So I work for Hustle 2.0. We're an organization that serves people who are men, women, and unfortunately, youth who are incarcerated in the United States. And we currently serve in all 50 states in this country. We take a holistic uh, approach to rehabilitation and healing. Uh, we focus on trauma. And we like to say that we, uh, we're putting lipstick on the pig by making trauma fun, processing trauma fun. And we do a really good job at that. And what makes me uniquely gifted to do that is my experience of serving 18 years in prison, being a former gang member, and misusing my leadership skills and my ability to help people. I misused those skills for a very long time. But when I decided to change that and use those skills to help people and to heal myself, then I get to share my story in our books or on podcasts like this with you, or I get to stand on a stage and share the experiences that I've been through the people who are incarcerated see that, wow, this guy has been where I've been. He has been in prison. He's made these bad choices in his life. But wow, now look at him. He is working at this awesome organization. I, I 
say I'm turning my pain into purpose. I could look at my life and say, oh, boo-hoo, I spent 18 years in prison and that's a wasted 18 years. But I choose to look at that and say, I can use that pain and I can show it to other people and show them that they can come out the other side and still do amazing things and they can have an impact with their story or with their pain that it didn't happen for nothing. My first question for you is, when did you realize you were a natural born leader? When people started telling me that I was. And that happened while I was incarcerated when Catherine Hoke brought an entrepreneurship program to the prison that I was at. I knew that I had leadership skills. But when other people who were successful entrepreneurs started telling me, why are you doing this in prison? Do you know that you could be a CEO? You could be this, you could be that. You have natural born leadership skills. When these successful people started telling me this, I started to believe it myself. I want to back up to that time in your in your life before you were incarcerated. And I think one of the things that people don't understand and actually don't have an opportunity to inquire about is how do people end up in prison? What are the series of decisions or the decision or patterns that lead to that? In your case, and now you work with so many other incarcerated individuals, what are some of those commonalities? But how did you get there, John? I don't necessarily mean the event as much as I mean, like, what are the series of things that enabled that to happen for you? I wasn't born a gang member. I wasn't born with the labels that have been placed on me. I love it that you said the choices or the decisions that I made because they weren't mistakes, but there are circumstances that led to my incarceration. I think the biggest moment that led to that was when I was, I think I was 11 years old and it's the last memory I have of my mom of as her tucking me into bed and going off to work. She still worked the graveyard shift. She was a waitress and I get up the next morning and on my way to school, I see my mom's car parked on the street as I'm walking to school and I walk up to the car and it's filled with blood. And that was my mom's murder scene. She had been beaten to death. So I found her murder scene. And after that, I never knew who my father was. So my mom's sister, she took me in. She became my guardian and she was a drug dealer. And she, one night I was, I was 17 and I was with her in the car one night when she gets pulled over and she's got drugs in the car. She's a sell crack. She's a natural born hustler, but definitely misused her skills as well. She'd already been arrested and she told me, John, I'm going to go to prison if you don't. She said, Take the, tell the cops they're yours. So I didn't want to lose my aunt. I already lost my mom. So I told the cops they were mine. And she watched as I was handcuffed and placed in the back of a cop car at 17 as a kid. And the person who was supposed to protect me, who promised to protect me, watched as I went to jail at 17 years old. And she praised me for it. And I felt like I did what I was supposed to do, right? I I protected my family from going to jail. And after that, I wanted more of that praise. So I committed my first aggravated robbery a few weeks after my release and gave her some of the money. And guess what happened? She praised me even more. So at 17, I'm getting exactly what I want. I'm getting, I feel accepted. I feel praised. I feel loved. I didn't, I didn't feel like I belonged to anyone. She had her own kids. So I know that she cared about me, but I I think I can explain it. But whenever 
I know that I'm not her number one priority. Her kids are. And that's, that's I don't fault her for that. That's, they're her kids. They're her children. You have children, right? If you, they're your number one priority in, in life, you will always put them first. So same thing for her. So I never felt like I belonged to anyone. So when I got to prison, when I got to jail, I became uh, a gang member. I got exactly what I wanted. I got my family that put me first. They loved me and accepted me. So there was those choice, those choices. But the short answer to that question is my aunt having me take a drug charge for her at 17 years old. That was the first time I'd ever ha- I'd ever been arrested. And that started me on the trajectory to going to prison. What was the journey from the bathroom at this nightclub to DJing on some of the most compelling stages in the entrepreneurial community? I'm big into learning personal development from people like Tony Robbins and Brendan Burchard, even JJ and a lot of the people that were here with this weekend. Uh, And that was that you have to have a vision that's so compelling. And mine was to be on stages to perform. And so my reticular activating system was set. And if they don't know what that is, if you haven't realize what that is that's super simple if you were to go out and buy a new car all of a sudden you see that new car everywhere right and so my unconscious mind was really honed in on how to get on a stage how to be in front of people performing and so what my unconscious mind was doing was like hey how do you get from this bathroom and into this dj booth and how i made that transition is what was happening in the bathroom is the only thing that kept me there was the fact that I could walk outside of the bathroom, look around the corner and there's this DJ just pumping up this crowd. And I was like, I got to get out of this place. What am I doing here? And so my unconscious mind was like, okay, well, what would get you from here to there? And I noticed really quickly that DJs love to party. They love taking shots and they love women. At least the guys liked women. And so I would save my tip money and I was like, I bet if I buy them shots and introduce them to some girls, they'll teach me what to do. And so I started saving my tip money. It's exactly how I made it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I bet that's what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure that's where the entrepreneurs came from. <laughs> so I did that for five weeks. And uh, after five weeks, I had accumulated enough knowledge that on a Friday when one of the DJs couldn't play... I was able to jump in and do my Eminem moment and took over the reins of this nightclub for 30 minutes and dropped some like theoretical music bombs on people, right? And just got this crowd whipped into a frenzy. The VIP section had some really good promoters in it that night. They introduced me to another promoter and that promoter set me on the biggest stages in Denver. So that in the super short explanation was how I got started. And before I knew it, those events and there's a lot more details in there i don't know how deep you want me to go into them but there's some crazy stories in there things that are not necessarily i don't know they're for sure not pg but the things that happened in the middle oh my god it's just nuts because i look back on it and i was like damn you did that that was crazy yeah but i find there's power in that right you look back like i look back at some of the things i did i'm like i can't believe i had the audacity to step in and just do that like in hindsight i had reverse imposter syndrome like is that something you have you did you struggle with imposter syndrome like when you just stepped on the stage that night and you're like i'm just i'm just going for it this is my moment i'm glad you say that because people ask me all the time like how did you have the courage to do that at that point i didn't have anything to lose yeah so when you have your back against the wall which my back was up against a real like shitty wall 
both <laughs> literally and, and figuratively. I was like, this sucks. I have nothing to lose. What if they could fire me from working in the bathroom? Which actually was funny because they came rushing to the DJ booth and I thought I was going to lose my bathroom job. And then they were like, what are you doing up here? And I was like, what do you mean? I'll go back to the bathroom. And they were actually like, no, you should be up here. And so to, to piggyback on what you're asking, that imposter syndrome really came after I had made it to these bigger places. And the thing that happened to me where imposter syndrome set in the biggest was when I was playing at trafficking conversion. And I had, oh, do you know who Rachel Hollis is? Mm -hmm. So that chick threw me under the bus on the main stage. And it's like, DJ, play me something good. And I was in the booth in front of 8,000 people. No one told me she was going to do this. No one actually knew she was going to do this. And when you play those main stages, I have on three sets of headphones. I have one to mix. I have one that's listening to the backstage of people like, hey, someone's coming up on stage. Then I have a third set of headphones and they're all small. So one's big and the other two are in each ear. So I have three voices. The third one is from the back of the line where they're like, hey, camera one, push up on Sammy. Camera two, I need this. So I need to hear all these three things. My headset explodes. Sammy, We've got someone so back, he's ready to come up after Rachel. Then the camera guys are like, Sammy, push up on Sammy. And I'm like, do not push up on me right now. Do not get that camera close to me because I do not know what song she wants me to play. And I pull up, I pulled up a Stevie Wonder song. No, I pulled up, um, I feel good. And she's like, no, not that one. Play me something good. Like if I'm drunk in college. And then it hit me so hard. My hands started shaking. I started sweating. And I look on the side. There's a there's a screen that's like two stories high. And it's me on that screen trying to find a song. And I'm like, oh, my mother F and G. What, what is she doing to me? And so at that moment, it was when I was like, I'm not good at this. Like, I can't do this. And that's when imposter syndrome hit me. And I had three shows left that night. Not only did I have the rest of TNC, I had to play all these other parties where people are like, I saw what Rachel Hollis did to you on stage. And we thought that was such a good act. And people thought it was an act later. But oh my I had to go back to the drawing board because I was like, am I not a good DJ? Could, I couldn't pull up a song that really, really sent it home. And that is when imposter syndrome hit me the most was when I felt like I had the most to lose. What happens in that period of incarceration that does not facilitate people moving towards making better choices when they come out? What happens that enables this to be a, a perpetuation? So when I get to prison, the indoctrination is not from the, I'm using air quotes here, the rehabilitation system in, our, in, our, in the United States of rehabilitating. The indoctrination is from gang members who say, come in, we're going to show you what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to be. And it's very militaristic. So my indoctrination was into a criminal lifestyle, not into rehabilitation, not into healing, not into why, not the prison system asking me, why are you here? What happened to you that, that caused you to make these choices? It's locked down 23, 24 hours a day, months at a time, and being taught by the other people that are, I was 17 years old around grown men who had been incarcerated for 20, 30, 40 years. And I was 17 years old. Those became my mentors. They became my teachers. And just for an example, I, I wasn't even given access to get my GED. I finished the seventh grade. I wasn't given access to earn my GED until 10 years into my prison sentence to earn any, to get any kind of education. That, if that's an example of what our prison system can be like here in the United States. For a 17-year-old kid going to prison, I should have been in school. 
but that didn't happen. So I'm indoctrinated that this is what we do. This is how gang members behave. This is how you behave in prison. And I was schooled in criminality instead of being schooled in rehabilitation or given the option to process my trauma or heal. Unfortunately, my story is not unique. My story is very common. The only unique thing about my story is that I, after my, since my release, I haven't broken any laws or committed any crimes or gone back to prison because the recidivism rate in this country is at 85%. And it's almost at, I think, in the 90s after. So within five years, almost 90% of people who are released from prison go back to prison. That's where my story is a little unique. But the trauma, the hardships, the bad decisions, the, that part is not unique. What is life like in prison? It's not what you see on TV or movies that I can promise you. You don't like walk up to the biggest guy, punch him and like assert your dominance. That's not the way I've never experienced that. That's not a good thing. That's not a good rule. But so I found purpose in using my skills in in a create harm and destruction. I believe that that was what I was born to do. I'm very purpose driven, even if that at a time when that purpose was not good. But in prison, you find a routine, you find habits, you engage in those habits. I educate people, so many people in there. It's it's one of the largest untapped talent pools that exists. People in prison are so driven to to learn and educate themselves and to soak up knowledge because I think for so long we were denied that. But it just becomes habit. We seek structure. So prison is structure-oriented. And there are so many rules and regulations, not by the cops, but by the people who are incarcerated, we create our own governments. We create our own economy. We create all of these things that keep us going every day. It creates this grit and this resilience for everybody in there to keep going and to have hope for something better. I don't know how to describe what it's like. You get used to the pain. You get used to the trauma. I think the best way to describe it is we wrote a course in our books called Emotional Suicide. And I know suicide implies a finality that you can't come back from that. But it was the best words we could use to describe it is that you have to kill your feelings and your emotions. You have to stuff them down because if not, you will not survive. You cannot do the things that you do in prison or see the things that you see in prison and feel empathy and compassion within that and keep going. So you have to kill those feelings, stuff those down. That's the best way that I could describe prison is you just have to kill your feelings and stuff them down and act as if they do not exist. I don't have to tell you that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't kill your feelings. You can try to numb them and then they come out in unhealthy ways. I remember actually being at that TNC event and walking into a room and like meeting a few different people and going and, and, and catching myself, catching myself in terms of stepping outside that comfort zone and feeling it in a different way, which I, I actually think is how you reinforce that you're in the right place. Mm. Like to me, it has become a barometer of being in the appropriate room. What did you what did you learn from that? Like, where did you go from that? How did you manage that? Well, for me, I'm such an extrovert. I wouldn't ask everybody. I was like, did you see the Rachel Hollis thing? What, what, did, what, what did you feel? And everyone said, oh, that was awesome. It was my favorite part. And, and you were so great about it. And I know that must have been really embarrassing. But honestly, no one knew you were going to do that. And you're such a professional. You just held it together. And it was incredible that you were just able to step up and just take it to the next level. So the the validation of being in the right room, that's really what I looked for. I was like, well, I, and part of me is like, am I going to get fired? They can't fire me at least on this one. I guess I guess I will, you know, keep keep my job. But at the same time, it was just one of those things where you're just like, oh my God, 
I need validation. I right. need to know that I'm okay. You have been in the right room. Like you've literally been in the room at some of the biggest events working alongside some of the most compelling people in this industry. What have been some of the most enduring lessons that have come from them? The biggest lessons that I learned from all those folks is they never did it alone. And to have a compelling vision that's so big that it pulls you to dream so big and to not be scared of that massive dream. So my vision for myself was not just a, hey, let's build a podcast company and let's let's have a talent agency. It was never that. It was like, let's get on the most compelling world-changing stages and work with the most influential, impactful people on the planet. And for me, I'm adopted from the Philippines. And when I found out my origin story, my biggest mission was to figure out how to save the kids from not having jobs and to get them put in a place that would be impactful for their lives. So what that dream was nuts. And so I wanted to figure out what would be the craziest thing that Richard Branson would do or that, um, you know, Elon Musk would do and all these people that have just changed the planet for better. And I learned from them that never being afraid of that massive dream is something that I really took away from it. Have fun, extreme amounts of fun, because it's all going to suck at some point. But if you do can you hang out with anyone who's not fun, no. Is it like a, a that is a that's criteria? A, that's to work a criteria. With you? <laughs> yeah, like that's a part of the thing. If you can't have fun, if you can't have a dance party on our Zoom call when we're doing shit, then we're, why would we want to work with you? And and then the other thing is, it's you're you're never alone on an island. If you can dream that big, there are going to be people that will support you. So those are the three big things. It's awesome. I really appreciate those takeaways. I'm also just like feeling. These none of these people are are reasonable people. Like they don't sit in the room. They're like, oh, like let's come up with some reasonable goals. Like it's it's so beyond that. Yeah, and I remember piece. when I was that second time I was on Necker Island, they brought me out there to play for his intergalactic party. They they were like, hey, we're going to space. I was with the Mavericks and Yannick and Sophia, and they were talking about going interstellar, and it was just a casual conversation. And he was talking about, yeah, we have to be an interstellar species, whether we're living on other planets, but we should be mining. And he's talking about Peter Diamandis and how he'd been mining on asteroids for a while now. And the conversation was so normal around this astronomically huge thinking. Like if I go back, when I go back and I was telling my parents this, I was like, yeah, they're talking about mining on asteroids and living interstellar and doing these things. And my mom's like, did you see the new baseboards on the floor? <laughs> it's like, it <laughs> does so sorry. I did not notice. <laughs> I was like, yeah, mom, we're talking about mining on asteroids. And she's like, I know, but those look great. Don't they? It's just, that's, and I think that is the, the, the society at a whole is, is not thinking like that. So we need people like you that are visionaries. We need people that go big and think huge and act in in correspondence to that because it's 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 rare, but it's so necessary. The dreamers really do compel and pull the future forward. And that's what I love to be around. And I don't know how I got lucky to do that, but it's been 25 years of, of working on that. Throughout my time, I did four years in solitary confinement, locked in a cage that's basically the size of an elevator and you literally don't see the sun. You literally don't feel the wind. You literally never go outside. Literally. I, I don't know how to explain it. It's, it. Literally. You do not go outside. You literally do not see the sun. You are literally in a box. And after I was released on October 22nd, 2016, it was a day before my birthday. And it was a day before I was supposed to be released. I was supposed to go home on my birthday. I 
wasn't going home. I was starting another four-year prison sentence for crimes I committed while I was incarcerated. And that was the day I stayed. I, on October 22nd, I stayed in my cell. We were, they released us out to yard. This wasn't solitary confinement. So they released us out to yard. I told my cellie, I don't feel good. I'm going to stay inside today because we're supposed to go to yard. I'm, I don't feel good. I'm going to stay inside today. And I, I stayed in my cell and I cried because I wanted to go home. It was the first time since I had been incarcerated at 17 that I wanted to go home. I didn't want to die in prison. And I knew that if I continued to engage in gang and criminal activity, that I would die in prison. I would die in a box. Nobody would remember me. My homeboys would, they'd be sad for a, a moment or a day. And then the conversation would go to whatever was next. And I did not want that. What was home for you? Just not prison. It was anything but that. Anything but, anything but dying in a box. What happened next? Because it sounds like there was this emotional opening for you. There was an emotional opportunity to see things differently. The changes, they didn't happen overnight, um, but I made gradual changes. Um, just, there is no, before this, there is no way out of a gang. The way you get out of a gang is you die or you snitch. And I didn't snitch and I'm not dead. But I started making gradual changes, and those changes were giving up my giving up all the privileges that came from being a high-ranking gang member at the time, of making money, selling drugs, selling cell phones, engaging in the microeconomy that exists in prison. I gave up all of those. I started giving up all of those privileges. The further I got into these baby steps, the bolder I got. I'm. I like to call myself courageous and stupid at the same time, and eventually I found I told my my homeboys my fellow gang members like i'm not i'm not doing this anymore and if you guys want to kill me then you can i'm okay with that um i'm gonna be here every day but i'm not i'm not gonna keep doing this and i was ridiculed i was threatened i was incarcerated at a super the only supermax prison we have out here the label for us is the worst of the worst that's literally the label they give us um, at this prison, the worst of the worst. That's a horrible, uh, if you think about that, just go down that trajectory of the worst of the worst. They finally told me, is this what you really want? And I said, yes, that's what I want. I want to go home. They said, all right, if that's what you want, you can go home. You're not one of us anymore. And I asked him why. He said, because it's, it's funny to me that you're a square. You're not really a gangster. You've, you've just been pretending to be one all your life. You could do better. They told me, I don't want to see you die in here. Go home. Mind your own business and everybody will leave you alone. And they did. Two years after that, I paroled. I, I was released from Pelican Bay State Prison. Is there support for individuals like you who have a strong change of intent around how you want to be involved in prison life? Like, is there like any system that lets you identify yourself as someone who's like, I want help. I want to rehabilitate. I want to go home. I want to be good. Like, so now there is. So that's where in our curriculum, we have what's called squaring up. So they called me a square after that. I was a square. So we called our, our gang retirement plan, we called it squaring up. And it needs to be shown with your actions, not your words. If they're at an institution or a prison that provides rehabilitative programming, it's engaging in that programming. It is no drugs, no alcohol. It's cutting those things off. It is not engaging in gang and criminal activity because I can see that. The other gang members, the other people who are incarcerated can see that. And they're probably going to make fun of you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to ostracize you. And that's what has to happen. That's part of the process. It's part of the process of changing your life. 
you're not turning your back, but you're giving up your family and you're giving up all the the values that were instilled in you from those people and saying, I have a new set of values. Does that mean that I still don't love the people who I was incarcerated with? I love them dearly. I miss them, but I don't want to be where they are. And I want them to come to this side where I'm at. I want them to one day be on your podcast and share their story. That is what we want for them. So if they need to show it with their actions, not talk about it. You add this layer of experience, this intangibility to the experience of of thinking bigger. And and I've been at enough events with you where like your role really is to inspire that subconscious to like vibrate. I do feel like that. So, you know, I'm wondering if you can just speak to this idea of like, how do you set a vibe? Like not just running events, but I, you know, I'm super interested in the user experience that mm. we create as business owners. I don't care if you run an insurance company yeah. or you're a car dealer totally. or you're a naturopathic doctor or like, it doesn't matter what you do. I, I feel like those individuals who have that intangible, je ne sais quoi, like they are, <laughs> they are uh, the Canadian way. You must be so Canadian. Je ne sais quoi. Je ne sais quoi. They have this intangible experience that they offer the people that they work with. It's mm. not just branded pieces of paper that you are signing. There is an experience of that. Do you have a do you have a philosophy or approach that you take to being able to really curate the experience for your clients? Yeah. Great question. Uh I get that asked a lot because people are like, How did you embed yourself so deep in Mind Valley, Mindshare, trafficking conversion, ma- like uh, this huge thing? And right. um inside the frame I never really understood what I was doing, but after you know, a decade of doing it and, and having the same clients for a decade. Um, there was a couple things that really started to stand out. And uh, the first one is a, a massive level of gratitude for the people that I work with. And so what that meant, it doesn't mean I'm just so thankful to have them. It meant that I went way deeper with them. It meant that I was like, oh, what's your favorite music? How are the kids doing? How's everyone else doing? So there's a level and Mark Wade was asking me, he's like, how in God's name did you get so embedded with my company? My company loves you so much. And I was like, I think I just really care so much about them. And that comes from starting with gratitude for just having such a a breadth of knowing one, I was adopted. So that has been ingrained in me for a long time. But if you're trying to like really create a vibe for somebody you need to know the company ethos you need that's that's huge you need to know the energy and the pulse of of who they're talking to and then when it comes down to like curating the total package i always remember that no one will really actually remember what you say they'll rarely remember what you did but they'll always remember how you made them feel and so when we take these tenets of knowing their ethos knowing their language, knowing the music that they love and the emotions that they're trying to get from people, then I can tell what they need to feel. Sometimes these conferences, they don't need to feel hype and energetic. They want to feel a deep connection. They want to, they want it to be intimate and it to be quiet. It doesn't need to have that. Like even for three days, they're like, we need intimacy and meditation and these types of things. And so I'll have to know that about them. So there's a combination kind of a knowing knowing the voicing knowing that real deep part of the of the ceo like jj as a ceo 
she has a super soft side to her that a lot of people don't know. And this childlike playfulness to what she does. And so the first year that I played mind played at Mindshare, we did this big pool party. And I remember I got that child out of her and she came bouncing up to me. And she's like, I love this. It's my favorite. And I was like, that's what mind, Mindshare is. Mindshare is a community of the most sought after professionals in their field, bringing out their childlike playfulness. And so I put that inside and that's why when I bookend all these parties and all these things with them, it's all about dancing and bringing that kid out of them. So when we're like thinking of parties and doing the stuff with them, it's like, oh yeah, we should have a bouncy castle at your thing. We should have games of everywhere. Of course there should be right? a bouncy castle. Of course, should of course we should have a theme party around like, what is your superhero and what do you dream of being? Right. So that's, those are the things that I've, I think I've gotten really lucky to know. And I, I I also discovered that through a lot of errors, a lot of mistakes with events where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just infuse what I think these people want and things have flatlined. I'm right. Like, but this is hey. what you were talking about before is that success leaves clues. And oh. I'm, I'm just a huge advocate of like, just, just copy successful people. Don't steal their stuff. Yeah. But emulate success 100 percent. so has has anything like really juicy and exciting happened behind the doors of one of these big events that you can <laughs> share with time. us that you All can tell let me know they're already keeping a secret for me <laughs> let's see juicy and explicit things that have happened behind the doors well there's always the fun the fun people on microphones that they don't know that their microphones are on mm-hmm. and like Some of the most prolific leaders and speakers that you think are just so sweet and nice. They are some dirty pirate hooker mouth swearing people. (laughs) So that's juicy. And and it's always the ones that you don't think. Never Um, happened to me. Never. (laughs) Never. Um, And then there's also, you know, on on the sweet side of it, there's there's, um, some of the most genuine and sweet things that people do that they never say anything about. Like a lot of people will be like, yo, give the staff here. I've seen this happen a lot more than I was expecting. Like, hey, give all the people that are like picking up dishes and stuff, give them an extra hundred bucks, just slide it to them as you go. I see that happen a lot. And then this is kind of a delicate thing, but the observance of people doing really inappropriate things during events. <laughs> that happens because uh-huh. you gotta, here's something is, and if you're a listener and you go to events and you're going back into live events again you got to remember that there is a front of house and a back of house uh-huh. and the stuff that people search on their computers and do things and the things and the videos that they're sending to people and the stuff that we see on people's computers when they're working it is it's effing shocking <laughs> don't worry we will not disclose any secrets no, i was like should i do that but no that that would be the uh, and then there's always there's always like an ousting of somebody that's like oh that person does bonk so they're getting fired i get that i see that a lot the men that you knew in in prison there are those individuals reachable if they were given different opportunities yes well that's what we get to do at hustle 2.0 the way this came about the way hustle 2.0 came about is the founder came in and asked us do you want to be known for the worst thing you've ever done and You've met Kat Hoke. She is ridiculously crazy brave as well. And told us, like, I'm not scared of you. Well, you think I'm scared of you because you're some big time gang members. I'm not scared of your rap sheet. Nobody's scared of you. Nobody cares. Do you want something better for your grandkids, for the future generations, for the communities? Do you want to do you want to use your leadership and your voice for positive change? And we said yes. And instead of being told we're the problem. 
the cops have been trying to solve the gang problem for years. They haven't made any progress. When you lock a gang member away, guess what? They don't stop being a gang member. They're still a gang member. So instead of locking us away and calling us the worst of the worst and any other labels they want to throw at us, she asked us, do you want to be part of the solution? Do you, you can, you can, you can be part of the solution. And we took that opportunity and said, yeah, you know what? We will do that. We will become part. We will use our voices to speak to the next generation and tell them we don't want to see you in prison. We don't want to see you here. This is not what you were meant for. If you want it, there's a spot for you. But if you don't, if you want something better, you can have that. And the same thing for our guys who have been incarcerated for 30, 40 years that are on our writing team that share positive messages. They just needed, they just needed somebody to say, Hey, I see value in you. I see worth in you and you can do better than you can do more if you want to. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do it. And they seize that opportunity. And it doesn't mean that they, they're not angels. They're not saints. They're not like they haven't completely reformed their lives and turn into mother Teresa. They're still making bad choices, but guess what? They're having an impact on the next generation to do positive things. They, I am out here doing what I get to do because they chose to see value in me and say, you know what, John, if you want to go home, go home. What is your purpose? My purpose is to share my story and write curriculum for hustle 2.0 and inspire people who are incarcerated to see that they can, they can come out through this stronger and they can take the best of their experiences in prison. Like what I got, I got leadership, grit, resilience, determination. I got all of those things from prison and from being from my former gang affiliations. And I get to use that now to have an impact on people. My purpose is to show them that they can do this and to show people out here that just because I have a criminal history or I, what, whatever labels are on me, they don't define me. That way, when next time, Someone who, whoever hears this podcast, when they come, when they interact with someone who is formerly incarcerated, they remember, oh, I remember John Jackson. He was pretty awesome. And I would give him a chance. So I see this person standing in front of me who has a criminal history or who has these labels slapped on them. I'm going to give them a chance. For just this minute, I'm going to bestow upon you this power. And it's imaginary because I have zero authority to do this. You get to reform the prison system. You get to, like you get to drive these changes. What are the most critical things you are going to change immediately? The first thing I would change is the correctional officers. They have training. They have trauma training. They have some kind of trauma training. They're therapists, not cops. They know that the people who are coming into there are human beings and they treat them like that. Instead of calling me by a number or calling me an inmate or slapping labels on me, they have their own trauma. They are allowed to process their trauma because they are traumatized by being in prison as well. There's trauma that's experienced before incarceration. There's trauma during incarceration causes its own trauma for the incarcerated person and for the guards who work there. They see things that no person should see. They endure things that no person should endure. The hurt people hurt people. And they are hurt. And because of that hurt, they hurt people who are incarcerated. They compound that trauma and they just continue to traumatize each other. And I, I, I think that would be my first step in reforming the prison system. We don't have enough time to talk about the money and profits that are made off of people who are incarcerated. But another part that I would change is that in California, it costs $80,000 a year to incarcerate one person. And if they were incentivized to keep people out, 
if the government paid them to keep people out instead of to bring people back in and give them $80,000 a year to incarcerate somebody, maybe our recidivism rate would flip. Maybe 90% wouldn't go back. Maybe 90% would stay out. So we're going to transition the interview. I got a series of rapid fire questions for you. And the first one is, has there been... Yes. Great. And question number two, has there <laughs> has there been a book or idea this year that has really like caught you off guard that you've like really you've just been compelled to share and or has really you know forced you to think in a different way uh limitless jim quick's book limitless that book blew my mind which was great because i had hit a stagnant point in like ingesting knowledge where i was like oh i gotta read a book gotta read a book gotta read a book but i wasn't asking myself the proper questions to read the books and there's this part in his book where he talks about you got to ask yourself the questions on why you're reading things. That way, if you do this, you'll actually ingest the knowledge and retain it like 80% more when you ask yourselves these proper questions and the framing around learning things. So I went from reading, you know, one or two books and retaining, you know, minimal pieces of it to really ingesting knowledge, but re- reading the right books for myself. Right. 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 Um, so that one and then Rocket Fuel. Like reading Rocket Fuel. Yeah, it's great. I read it. I read it at least once a quarter because I'm always looking to find the best integrator and to figure out how to use that uh, in my company, you know, as the visionary. And so Rocket Fuel definitely shows you the structure of how to build a company uh, as a CEO better. And I'm always looking at ways to communicate better with my team because I've realized really quickly that I have fragmented thoughts and th- like, I didn't realize that. And they're like, what are you even talking about? And I was like, that doesn't make sense to you. What are you talking about? That's crazy. That makes perfect sense. And then reading that book showed me how to just look at it from there on. You don't have that problem, right? No, I don't. I mean, I don't have any problems, really. (laughs) (laughs) That is like 25 other, 25 other episodes. I feel like we're just stacking episodes right now. We are stacking episodes. I'm also just going to remind us that these are rapid fire questions. So question number two, what's your favorite health hack? Ice baths. Oh, yes. High five in real life to the, Sammy and I actually, how do I phrase this? Sammy and I had an ice bath yesterday together sort of well yeah. we were, we were really both in, that poorly. <laughs> we were both in the same bath but not at the same time well, a, a lot of us ice bath even framing it worse yeah, yeah. So we're going down question number three <laughs> how would you define your purpose Ooh, wow that's a great question really hit the brakes on that one didn't you okay so defining my purpose uh, i think my purpose is to inspire and to educate. And that's my two main things. And I also, I used to think it was entertain, but entertainment is just a natural part of what I do. So I think my purpose is to really, oh, here it is. This is what I always say. I always want to leave people in awe. I, I don't even think I can keep going. Last question for you. Entrepreneurship. Are we born this way or do we learn to become entrepreneurs? Oh, I think we're born this way. And then we find the best ones and learn more about it. I don't think you, you're you born this way. I, I, 
I, I'm going to leave you with that thought. Sammy, you are doing so many awesome things in this world. You're super fun to follow. Where can we send people so that they can follow along on your awesome journey? We didn't even talk about this, but my entertainment name is Shoebox Moses. And you can go to shoeboxmoses.com and you can actually find out why they call me Shoebox Moses. But yeah, Sammy Taggett is also Shoebox Moses. And you can go and find me there. I've got a few like quick questions for you because i want people to really understand the the life you are living right now and we're getting a glimpse of the impact that you're having what do you do for fun or play i ski my heart out i know i've seen pictures of you skiing i was hoping you'd say that i live in lake tahoe california i have access to a resort i have access to the mountains and the lakes and this is my second year skiing but i i don't know why but i took to it so naturally I, on my first year ever skiing with no lessons, I was launching myself on double black diamonds and ridiculous. That's where my arrogance and my courage comes in. And I love it. I love getting out on the mountain and playing in the snow. What's a non-negotiable for you in your life? Um, engaging in criminal activity. That's a non-negotiable for me. Um, it's, it's just, it's a hard no. And it doesn't mean that I don't have criminal thoughts. It doesn't mean that these, it doesn't mean that I still don't. Criminal thinking is, uh, I think we all have criminal thoughts. We see opportunities that are against, whether it's speeding. We tell ourselves, ah, well, the speed limit's 25, but I'm in a rush. I need to get where I need to go. So it's okay for me. That rule doesn't apply to me. Right. For me, I still have those thoughts. But guess what? I go one mile under the speed limit because I, I can't afford to be pulled over and, have the, and be arrested again. I can't afford that. So for me, that is a hard no. Are we born to be entrepreneurs or do we learn that skill as we go? I think it's both. I think people can be born and people can learn it. I think everybody is inherently born to be, to create something and to take risks. I think the definition of an entrepreneur is one who assumes risk. A person who assumes that risk, we all are inherently born to create and take risks. And I think when people choose to lean into that, they can do some amazing things. Last question for you, John. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? I was talking about this yesterday. I want to create an academy of people. Uh, I want to create a good military. I want to create a military of social change of people who come to my academy and they learn to do amazing things to help people, to heal people. And they are launched. They are deployed into communities around the world. They help people heal and they they heal communities and they use their lived experience to create change for those communities. And they are an army of good, an army for social change. John Jackson, this has been one of the most amazing, memorable podcasts I have ever recorded. And I want to thank you for that. Where can I send people to follow along on your journey of impact? Uh, They can go to hustle20.com. And if you feel compelled, tell to sponsor a person who's incarcerated for their scholarship you can look at their reason why they think they can be they want to be a certified hustler and change their hustle and it costs 50 bucks and i guarantee you you will have an impact in their life because they are waiting for a second chance and you can provide that for them so that is my ask or how some your listeners can have an impact on somebody they may not even know i love that john thank you so much for your time Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. 
It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.